0: Hey, listener. Thank you for joining us for this installment of the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. We are currently studying the Book of Ruth. Many people approach this well known story as a romance between Ruth and Boaz, but it's a bit more than that. A lot more, actually. It's a story of grief and loss, bitterness and resentment. It's a story of including the stranger. It's a story of the radical and costly commitment modeled by some of the book's main characters and God's unending faithfulness even in the midst of tragedy. Ultimately, it's a story of redemption and restoration and hope. There is a lot to consider in this beautiful and ancient work of art, and as we hope to make clear, it points us ahead to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Enjoy the episode. evening are starting a new sermon series on the book of Ruth and I am excited are you guys excited we've gone from one Old Testament book to another Old Testament book and we will finish this one it's only four chapters. We will finish this book. And actually, we will get back to Exodus at some point because there's a lot of really good stuff after uh, the Israelites have crossed the Red Sea, which is where we left them. But I thought it'd be good to give us a, a change of pace for the summer and to go to a small book of the Bible that we can, um, that we can you know, do, some, do some damage to this evening. And this is our text, Ruth 1. During the days when the judges ruled, the word of God for the people of God. We're doing the first clause in the book of Ruth tonight. And I had a young man tell me, or actually tell his mom this, uh, this past week, they said, good grief, I'm glad that Josh isn't going through a big book like the book of Isaiah or something like that, because he'd probably be in there for five years. And I did the math on this. The amount of uh, material that we are looking at this evening is I believe five words in the Hebrew text, uh, which means that we would be in Ruth for 510 weeks if we went at that same pace about 10 years or so. We're gonna add a little bit more to this as we go, so don't be dismayed here, but I do want us to see that the importance of what's going on in this very small introduction to the book of Ruth. For those of you that don't know, Ruth is a story of family. It begins with the story of four individuals, Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Kilion. And there's a famine in the land, so these people, they travel from Bethlehem and they go into the land of Moab in search of food. It's ironic that Bethlehem literally means house of bread, but they have to leave this place and go in, in search of food. And in the process of the first six or so verses of this book, Elimelech dies, Malon dies, Kilion dies and we're left sort of with Naomi. The book, I think, might be inappropriately named Ruth because really this is a story of Naomi and Naomi's redemption in this whole process. But in the midst of her family being in Moab, Malon and Kilion, they find Moabite wives. That will be important later on as we go. But Ruth and Orpah have attached themselves to the sons of Naomi, and as everyone in the family dies, it's just Naomi and Ruth Orpah, and in the first chapter, it's a story of grief. There's grief that goes beyond uh, the first chapter, into the whole book, where we see death. Naomi has lost her husband, and she's lost her two kids. We also see the the grief of barrenness in that Ruth and Orpah they cannot bear children. Apparently, they spend ten years or so in Moab. It's unclear how long they're actually married. in the land and how long they're trying to have kids. This isn't like an American context where it's like Ruth says, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm an independent lady, I'm not quite ready to settle down and have kids yet. It's like as soon as you get married, that's the goal, that's the purpose. And we don't know how long they were trying, but it's a story of intense grief because there are no children. And we're left with Naomi who, in that first chapter, when she returns back to Bethlehem, she says, don't call me Naomi, which means something uh, in the idea of pleasant. Call me Mara because my life is bitter. Ruth is a story of, of grief. We've kind of, um, for the churched people in, in the group, if you've done like a Bible study on this, you might have heard of Ruth as like this over-romanticized, Ruth as the Cinderella figure and her main man, Boaz, which shows up later in, in the passage where they get married. And it's like this love story. But actually, if, if we look at it for what it is, it's a story of, of grief and longing And yes, Ruth and Boaz do get married, and yes, they do eventually have children, but let us not go over the very real pain that they're feeling in the midst of this. It's also a story of of commitment. The Hebrew word here is chesed. Dig really deep back into your throat there. Chesed. It's a story of acts of commitment and faithfulness where the people are showing loyalty. Some Bible translations will look at um, that text as steadfast love, the steadfast love of these characters. Ruth showing chesed to Naomi. Boaz showing chesed to Ruth. We've got this, this... this uh, interplay where the people are showing their commitment and their dedication to one another. And as we talk about each week about us being the hands and feet of Jesus, that's really like christian language. What I mean by that is we present an image of Jesus. We become the people who fight for restoration and reconciliation. We are the ones that announce hope and promise and a future to, to folks. And in this story, we see how God works through people and their acts of commitment that demonstrate that he is still at work. And underlying this whole book is the unending faithfulness. And I didn't say this, but it's the unending faithfulness of God to his people. Now, but in order for us to to understand the real breadth of what's going on here, I do want us to look at just this first Clause here, during the days when the judges ruled, and I'm gonna warn you guys, this is, this is a weird one tonight, okay? Um, I fought it a bit in my mind, but I think this is where uh, we're going, so I'm just gonna ask you to, to stick with me. If you do have a Bible, we're gonna be reading a good chunk of it, uh, so if you've got your phone or you wanna get a pew Bible or whatever, it's not on the screen, so if you wanna follow along, please do that. We'll be um, in the book of Judges tonight. But it says, during the days when the judges ruled, this first little intro is setting up the story similar to whenever you watch a Star Wars film, the very first screen, you'll have that... that noticeable music and you'll start to have all of these words showing up on the, on the screen. And I know that some of you, especially the people that are just kind of drug into the theater, you're sitting on the couch and somebody's like, hey, you haven't seen Star Wars? We have to fix that. Let's get pizzas and we'll watch all of them immediately. And you're like watching these words and you have no idea what's going on. I mean, it's talking about the rebel forces from their hidden base and they're pursuing these other people across the galaxy and they're trying to evade the dreaded Imperial Starfleet. And you're like, done. But it's important for you to understand, even the beginning of this movie, what's going on so you can kind of figure out what this film is all about. And so often as readers of the Bible, we don't do that in understanding where these stories are rooted. So I'm wanting us to pause tonight and to look at this first clause so that we can understand what Ruth is all about. And in order to do that, it says, when when the judges were uh, judging or when the judges were ruling. During this time in the book of Judges, it's... um, It's a book that's structured by a cycle of sin. Certain things keep happening over and over and over. And the author or editor of the book of Judges is actually pretty astute in how they are forming this book together because we keep seeing these certain patterns that are recurring over and over. It says that Israel did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. And then Yahweh hands Israel over to an oppressor. And then Israel eventually cries out for deliverance. And sometimes this is years and years and years after the oppressor has been in power. Eventually, Yahweh will provide a judge or a chieftain, or a leader. If I was picking between the three, I would probably want to be a chieftain. Okay. And then later, through the through the delivering work of this judge, the land has peace, and Israel is devoid of their oppressor. And we see this cycle throughout the book. It shows up in early on in Judges chapter two, and I am gonna read this just because I think it's, Good to read the Bible uh, in church. This is Judges chapter two, beginning in verse 11. This is how this plays out. It says, then the Israelites, in verse 11, then the Israelites did things that the Lord saw as evil. They served the Baals, and they went away from the Lord, their ancestors' God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And this is usually what it is. They're doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they're serving other gods. They're committing idolatry. They're going away from Yahweh and serving God. Baal or uh, the Ashtoreth or these other forms of pagan worship. They went after other gods from among the surrounding peoples. It says they worshiped them and they angered the Lord in doing so. They went away from the Lord and they served, the, uh, served Baal. And uh, that's really Ashtart, a female deity at this time that they're also going to worship. So the Lord became angry with Israel and handed them over To raiders who plundered them, he let them be defeated by their enemies around them so that they were no longer able to stand up to them. Whenever the Israelites marched out, the Lord's power worked against them just as the Lord had warned them, and they were very distressed. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up leaders to rescue them from the power of these raiders, but they wouldn't even obey their own leaders because they were unfaithful following other gods and worshiping them. They quickly deviated from the way of their ancestors who had obeyed the Lord's commands and didn't follow their example. The Lord was moved by Israel's groaning under those who oppressed and crushed them. This is where Israel is crying out to the Lord. So the Lord would raise up leaders for them and the Lord would be with their leader and he would rescue Israel from the power of their enemies. But then when the leader died, they would once again act in ways that weren't as good as the ancestors going out after other gods. So we see this, this cycle, this is happening, this structures how we understand the judges. Whenever a judge would show up, it's because Israel had done evil in the eyes of the Lord and they had followed after other gods and God had given them over to an oppressor. Without just seeing it though as a cycle of sin where things repeat itself, I think it's important in the book of Judges to see this as a downward spiral where things get worse and worse and worse, and worse. One of the last judges, Samson, again for the church people, we see him in Sunday school, and that might be one of the first stories you ever remember. Samson's cool, he's got long hair, he's really strong, and he kills a lot of people. Samson's story is a train wreck from the beginning to the end. He's like going after cult prostitutes, and he's like burning down fields by putting foxes' tails on fire. I mean, he's, he's crazy. And we see that in this story, it just is, it's a downward spiral where Israel is so far away from God and things keep getting worse and worse and worse until we end up in Judges 19 through 21. And this is where things are gonna get dicey this evening because this is not, I can pretty much guarantee, this is not a text that is preached much in the American church. I do not believe that this is part of the lectionary, which is the arranged passages that people preach through on a yearly basis. This is not one of those because of how intense it is. In fact, one scholar says that this is the most horrible story of the Hebrew Bible, and some people even go on beyond that to say it might even be the most horrible story of the Bible, period. During the time when the judges judged, this is where we meet Ruth. And our plan for this evening is just to go through um, Judges chapter 19. I'm going to read through it, but I've got a ton of notes here. So I'm just going to talk us through what's going on. It's 30 verses. So yeah, I said we were going to really learn uh, five words, but that's not totally true. I didn't mean to lead you astray, but I did. Anyway, yes. Okay. So this is Judges chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. It says, in those days when there was no King. I believe this is a line that structures this entire story. You can see that it begins, Judges 19, 1, in those days when there was no king. And then if you want to flip over to the very last verse of the book, at the end of Judges 21, it also says, in the days when there were no kings, people did what was right in their own eyes. It's a bookend. It's the beginning and the end of this entire cycle. And it's saying, no king is a huge problem. People aren't following the true king, Yahweh, and they're doing whatever it is that they want to do, and this means bad stuff is going on. In those days when there was no king in Israel, there was a certain Levite. Couple things, a Levite is supposed to be in charge of the spiritual growth of these people. It's a priestly figure. Okay, you'd expect good things from this person. We do not get good things from this person as we go on in this story. And also note, he is not named. There is no one who has a name in Judges 19 through 21 except for one character, Phineas. In this story, no one is named, and most commentators would say that is meant to uh, bring us in as readers, and especially as ancient readers, to say this is a stand-in for Israel as a whole. What they're doing is so atrocious that this is a story that's almost repeatable. There was a certain Levite living as an immigrant in the far corners of the Ephraim highlands. He married, my translation says, he married a secondary wife. Your translation might say he took a concubine. Um, I think literally in the Hebrew it says that he took a concubine for himself. But really what that concubine term means is it's a secondary wife. It's a second class citizen who has some of the privileges perhaps of a wife, but not as many as a real wife might. This is a person that could potentially be taken advantage of, although there are some um, stipulations for how one would treat a concubine. He married a secondary wife from Bethlehem in Judah in an act of unfaithfulness toward him. His secondary wife left him and went back to her father's household at Bethlehem in Judah. If you care, that that phrase there, in an act of unfaithfulness. So in the Hebrew text, it says that she played the harlot. She cheats on him. She leaves him. She has a rendezvous with somebody else, perhaps. How nerdy do you want to go? Let's just, let's just go there. So in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says that she leaves not because she was playing the harlot or the prostitute, but because she was angry with him. It's unclear as to why she leaves, but what we see here is this secondary wife, this person without um, the status that you might want to afford her, is making moves, She's leaving the place of her um, safety and security, perhaps, in this culture. She's leaving and going back to her dad's house. Now, some people would say that if she does play the, the harlot and goes home, that dad's move should be to stone her on sight because she's been unfaithful, according to Old Testament law. Can we just pause there for a second and say, uh. okay. Are we all on the same page there? We don't know why she leaves, but she goes back to hang out with her dad and she hangs out with her dad for four full months. In verse three, though, this is important. I'm gonna get you to repeat some stuff. Then her husband set out after her, that unnamed Levite, he sets out after her to convince her to come back. Literally, it says, he's going to speak to her heart. Say, speak to her heart. I never make you do the repetition stuff that much, but say it one more time. Speak to her heart. Because this is the pivotal moment in this passage. He's going to speak to her heart and to bring her back home. My translation says he's going to convince her to come back. So he sets out with his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. She took him when he eventually gets there. You can tell in the Hebrew Bible, it just skips over big, big amounts of stuff. Technical term. It skips over big amounts of stuff and it takes you along. So he leaves and then he shows up and it says that she takes him into her father's house. And when the young man's, or the, when the young woman's father saw him, he was happy to welcome him. Nobody knows why that is. Maybe he didn't really want his daughter to be home with him. Maybe he knew that it was a a bad move on her part that she would come back home and leave her husband high and dry, even though when we understand more about this person, we would say, yeah, you should leave this guy. But he's happy to welcome him. Since his father-in-law, the young woman's father, insisted he stayed with him three days, eating and drinking and spending the night there. And on the fourth day, they try to leave. They get up early in the morning so they can get out on their way and, and the dad says, wait, 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 you guys need to stay here and have some food for the trip and get a, get a morsel of bread, I believe it says in the Hebrew. And he convinces them to stay and, and once it gets so, so long in the day, he's like, why don't you just stay here a little bit longer and spend the night? You can go out tomorrow. So they say, okay, whatever, we'll, we'll go ahead and do that. Same thing happens on the fifth day. It says, on the fifth day, he got up early in the morning, this is the Levite, to set out, and the young woman's father said, have some food for strength. So the two of them ate. This happens on both the fourth day and the fifth day. It talks about the two of them, the Levite and the dad, and they're breaking bread. Who's missing from the story? Wife, completely silent. He's going to speak kindly to her. He's going to speak tenderly. He's going to speak to her heart. He's going to win her back and to convince her. Yet she is completely passive in this story. She says nothing. But dad and husband, they're kicking back and they're having a couple drinks and they're eating food and what have you. And the woman isn't really heard from. So the two of them, they begin to eat on the fifth day. And when the man got ready to set out with his secondary wife and his servant, his father in law, the young woman's father, said, Look, the day has turned to evening, so spend the night. Seriously, the day it's over. Spend the night here and enjoy yourself. Then you can get up early in the morning. You can see this pattern. They're there for three days. On the fourth day, the dad convinced him to stay. On the fifth day, he's trying to convince him to stay. But the guy says, I'm not going to do that. It says that he's unwilling to spend another night. So he gets up and he sets out in the middle of the day, which is something that you don't really want to do in the ancient Near East because when when you're traveling, you don't want to be left out in the middle of nowhere because you'll get robbed or what have you. But it says they set out and they went as far as the area of Jebus. That is Jerusalem. Now you're thinking like, oh, that sounds cool, right? Jerusalem, I've heard of that. That's where King David is. That's, that's the good place. Not yet. Here, this is Canaanite territory. And so the Levite begins to think, hmm. I don't know if I wanna go to where the Canaanites are because I don't trust them. When they were near this place, the day was totally gone, it says. The servant said to his master, come on, let's turn into this Jebusite city and spend the night in it. But the master replied to him, we won't turn into a city of foreigners who aren't Israelites. We'll travel on to Gibeah. We'll travel on to where we know we will be safe, where we know we will be with our people. Come on, he said to the servant, let's reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they traveled on and the sun set when they were near Gibeah and Benjamin. They turned in to enter there so that they could spend the night in Gibeah. And he went and he sat down in the city square. But no one offered to take them in. What? 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 They went past the Canaanite town and said, no, we're gonna keep on going to Gibeah because that's our family, that's our blood, those are our people, those are Israelites. And when we get there, they will have these rules of hospitality where they have to take us in. And when they get there, they just kind of sit in the square and nobody takes them in. This is not what happens. This story is about hospitality in one sense of the term, and this is hospitality that is not afforded to these people, but go back to the dad. Remember the dad, stay here and eat some food and have some drinks, stay the night, stay with me. I'm so happy that you're here. Just be with me a little bit longer. That guy is like hospitality on overdrive. That is the overbearing person that you don't really wanna see, and when you see them, you kind of sidestep to the other aisle because you know when you do see them, it will be like, hey, man, how you doing? It's so good to see you. Kind of like when I, like me, when I'm out in public, when I see, when I see you guys, is that the greeting you get? No, okay. Um, but here there's no hospitality, but no one offered to take them in. Then in the evening, an old man was coming home from his daily work in the fields. This man was from the Ephraim highlands and was an immigrant in Gibeah. This is really important, especially in this um, socio-historical moment. This person has no right to do what he's doing because he's not from this place. Yet when he sees them, it says he, he looked up and he saw the traveler in the city square. And he says, where are you heading? And where have you come from? He begins to ask him questions, which you don't do. The rules of hospitality are such that you see someone in the square and you take them home with you and you cook them food and you give them a place to sleep. You don't say, where are you going and where'd you come from? Who are you? And you especially don't ask anyone if you're not even from this place. This old guy's doing stuff that in the the moment of of time here is kind of um, overstepping his bounds. We're traveling from Bethlehem in Judah to the far corners of the Ephraim highlands, he says. That's where I'm from. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm heading home, but no one has offered to take me in. We've got our own food, and we've got our own straw to feed our donkeys. Plus, we have food and wine to provide for me. I don't know what your translation says. Mine says the woman, but literally, it's your maid servant, The wife of this guy, this concubine of this guy, the one that he's going to speak tenderly to has now become a pawn in his game of, I've got all this stuff and I've got this maidservant here. And there's an implication of, hey old man, if this sweetens the deal, take us in. So he's starting to use this language that's, that's uh, evocative and we'll see how that plays out later, but it's, he's got enough food and wine for me and the woman and my servant with us, we don't need anything. And again, in this time, this is something that you don't do. If you're the guest, you are the guest. You don't say, I've got all my stuff. Just give me a place to to be. This isn't how it works in the ancient Near East because a host's job is to provide for folks, which is why the old man says, you're welcome to stay with me, but let me take care of all of your needs. Just don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into the house. He mixed feed for the donkeys and they washed their feet ate and drank and while they were relaxing suddenly the men of the city a perverse bunch this is where the story is going to take a turn here this is already kind of looking bad for the the Levite here it's going to it's going to get infinitely worse while they were relaxing suddenly the men of the city a perverse bunch surrounded the house and started pounding on the door they said to the old man the owner of the house send out the man who came to your house that we can have sex with him Literally, it's so that we can know him, but in the Hebrew, that's kind of a euphemism. What they want to do is to have this Levite come outside so that they can violate him. For the biblically literate people, this story should be starting to sound very familiar, because this is kind of the same template as the Sodom and Gomorrah story, but with different characters, okay? The owner of the house went outside to them to say, no, my friends, please don't commit such an evil act given that this man has come to my house as a guest. I've got to be hospitable to this person. You guys can't come over here and start banging on the door and trying to have sex with him. Get out of here. I'm trying to be hospitable for you because nobody in your town was taking him in. And here I am, a foreigner, and I've got this guy. Get out of here. Then he says something that makes him a little bit less endearing. He says here's my virgin daughter and here's this guy's secondary wife. Let me send them out to you and you can abuse them and do whatever it is that you want to do to them. Remember how the the brackets of this story are, there was no king in the land and everybody did whatever they wanted to do. They did what was right in their own eyes and hear this guy saying, let me give you these people. And you can do whatever it is that pleases you with them. You can abuse them, you can violate them, you can... But don't do such a disgraceful thing to this man, he says. But the men refused to listen to him. So the Levite, this is what the Levite does, the priestly guy, the guy who's supposed to be like spiritual, he takes his concubine, his secondary wife, and he sends her outside to them. They raped her and abused her all night long until morning. They finally let her go as dawn was breaking. At daybreak, the woman came and collapsed at the door of the man's house where her husband was staying, where she lay until it was daylight. When her husband got up in the morning, he opened the doors of the house and went outside to set out on his journey. The Levite here, in order to um, save himself, in this image, pushes his wife out the door, his concubine out the door, his secondary wife out the door, shuts the door behind him and goes to have a night of sleep. We don't hear anything about what happens when he puts her outside to the morning. All we hear about is in the morning. And this, this uh, passage here is, is couched with at daybreak, when the light was breaking, at, sun, at sunrise, these sorts of like temporal terms to evoke the fact that the lights, in a sense, had gone out for the morality of these people. And in the morning, he opened the doors of the house and went outside to continue on his way. And there she was, lying at the entrance of the house with her hands clutching the door frame. And the guy who was going to speak to her heart, to speak tenderly to her, to win her back, to convince her, finally speaks to this woman and he says, get up, let's go. There's no king in the land and the people are doing what's right in their own eyes. And this downward spiral of sin has gotten to this point where the spiritual leader is completely and utterly I don't even know what the word is about how he's acting and what he's doing, but he says, get up, let's go. There was no response. Now we don't know at this point the, um, the status of this woman. But what we do know is the guy after saying, get up, let's go, and then having no response, it says he laid her across a donkey and the man set out for home just like he was intending to, but when he got home, and I, this, this story is is meant to be ridiculous, and I do not want you to read in like this is, this is in the Bible, so it must be good there 's nothing good about this. this is only meant to give you the image of how far gone these people. But when he gets home, it says he picks up a knife. He took his secondary wife, his concubine, the one that he was going to speak to her heart, to speak tenderly to her, to bring her back. And he chopped her limb by limb into 12 pieces. And then he sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, has such a thing ever happened or been seen since the time when the Israelites came up from the land of Egypt until today? I find this last line ironic. He says, think about it, decide what to do, and speak. The man who's going to speak to his wife and saying only, get up, let's go, now asking other people to consider and to think and then speak out. This story is absolutely intense, and this story is difficult for us. One scholar says, to hear this story is to inhabit a world of unrelenting terror that refuses to let us pass by on the other side. And what we see here in this passage, this is some medieval art about this um, story here, that I doubt is overly familiar to you. But I think there's things that we can gain from this story. First of all, there's not a lot of redeeming qualities. I would in fact say that there are zero redeeming qualities of this story. There's nothing that we can really take away from it and apply to our lives. You will not see this passage in your daily bread. You will not have this as a devotional in the morning. The only reason why this story is in the text is to show you that these people are so far gone. They're without a king. They're not following Yahweh. They do not care. They're doing whatever is right in their own eyes and they are making atrocious, atrocious decisions. What I don't wanna do as a 21st century American Christian is say, Jesus makes it better. Because when we're dealing with stuff like this, when we're dealing with sexual abuse or physical abuse or verbal abuse, when we're dealing with the real hurts and pains that come along in this life, whether they be created through um, difficulties of relationship or the mistreatment that we may or may not go through due to uh, race or due to all sorts of other things that might put us on the outskirts, or on the margins, this doesn't... um, This isn't a message where we say, Jesus fixes all of that. In a sense where he makes it all go away. There's nothing that we can say about this story that changes the outcome. That this unnamed woman was treated so terribly and dies a horrific death. The way that the church perhaps wants to talk about that is say, oh, just say this prayer and everything will be okay. And I at least want tonight to allow us the space to have lament and to have pain and to have those moments where it doesn't really necessarily work out that way. Jesus doesn't necessarily fix that. But I hope that we can see this maybe as a rallying cry as a community to know that this kind of stuff, perhaps not to this extreme, is a reality in some people's lives. And it's up to us to be present and to be um, involved and invested to have these demonstrations of chesed, this loyalty and commitment and steadfast love where we stand in the gaps with people and we go through the very difficult work of bringing about reconciliation and through pain and tears and time restoration that I do believe is only granted through Jesus, but just not in the way that we talk about it. In this particular passage, we see the horrors of what people on their own can do during the days when judges ruled. You can't skip over that phrase, and just get to the next bit because what the author of Ruth is wanting you to do is to remember all of this stuff and say in the midst of this heinous, disastrous, atrocious acts of immorality, there's a ray of hope that we see in how this foreign woman committed herself to a widow and says, I will go where you go and I will die wherever it is that you die and my my gods will be your gods and I will be with you, Naomi, in the midst of all of this stuff. And perhaps when we see this contrast between the atrocious stories of judges and we see even in this first few few words of, of Ruth and we hear this, In the midst of the disaster, in the midst of the heinous stuff, there was a ray of hope. And maybe tonight the call for us is to become a ray of hope. Perhaps the call for us in our society, which you could almost say is uh, similar to the world without a king and people doing what's right in their own eyes, perhaps the call for us as a community at TRP is to be people that know what it looks like to have steadfast love and loyalty, and that can be with people in the midst of the difficult stuff. This book opens up innocuously enough during the time when the judges judged, but the author does not want you to look beyond that so quickly. And for us, so far removed from this uh, context, I think it's even more important for us to stop and to back up and to remember that this time was not a good time, but there's moments and there's threads of redemption that we see in this story that we will see over the next few weeks. There's no real neat way to tie this up, but I'm hopeful that we can be encouraged to leave here and to be a beautiful image of Jesus in the midst of people's jacked-up lives, our own included. Thanks again for joining us. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to visit us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story is, there's room for you here. And again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. Hope to see you soon.